morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. The series that we are in the middle of right now is based on a statement that Jesus made about himself. It's found in Luke 19, verse 10. So let me read this again to you. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, he was not talking about those who are lost on the outside and needing directions to how to get someplace physically. We have GPS now for that purpose. Jesus was talking about being lost on the inside. And that condition is caused by trying to navigate the vast maze of decisions that we need to make in this world without really any ongoing or regular input from God who made not only us, but the world that we are trying to navigate. Now on the surface, most people do not look lost, especially in a community like this. We tend to look very confident and busy as we head off to accomplish our important tasks and build our impressive lives. But if you scratch below the very well-put-together surface, you will find a sea of emotions that are raging on the inside of most people in your neighborhood and on your job and in your schools and in this community. There is sadness. There is anger. There is depression. There is loneliness all around us. Very few in this community will lay their head on their pillow tonight with a deep sense of peace and joy. Now, how can that be? I mean, a place like this, with weather like this, and opportunities like these, how, how does that occur? Well, it turns out that our emotions need more than just sun and surf and money. We need God emotionally. Without Him, we get lost emotionally. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, a statement in the New Testament, describes how this condition occurs. We're going to look at this this morning, but let me read it to you. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19, this is what it says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. There are two phrases in particular in this passage that describe the condition of being lost emotionally. It's these two phrases, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. It begins by losing all sensitivity. That's the first way we feel lost emotionally. Now, the root of both the word sensitivity and sensuality is the same. It's the word sense. And it is our senses that allow us to perceive the outside world. We've been given five senses to perceive our physical world. Sight, sound, taste, smell, touch. These five allow us to accurately perceive and adjust to, navigate through the physical world. Webster defines sensitivity this way. It says being receptive to sense impressions. The idea is we, we receive them and, and then we adjust accordingly. So what occurs when we lose all sensitivity? Well, at that point, we are unable to accurately perceive and therefore adjust to the real world. A few weeks ago, I decided to go on a run and uh, my wife noticed me just as I was getting ready to head off on my run. She was in the car and so she drove towards me to, to say hi as I was heading off, but I had my earbuds in, I was listening to music, I had my head down, 
I didn't see her. I was in my own little world. And so when I didn't respond to her, she honked the horn. Well, I did hear that. And I looked up, and I saw this car coming straight towards me, and I thought for just a moment, I'm dead. Some crazy person has decided to just run me over. Now, of course, I was wrong. What had happened at that point is I, I had lost the ability to accurately sense my surroundings. Why? Because my senses were focused in on myself. I was in my own little world. They were not focused out. And so I misperceived the larger world that I was running in. Now, in that moment when that horn honked, <clears throat> I sensed something else that did not come through my five physical senses. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. I didn't taste it, smell it, or touch it. But I felt it. What did I fear? What did I feel? Well, now you know. Fear. <laughs> well, where did that come from? My emotions. You see, God didn't just give us five physical senses to be able to live in this physical world and adjust to it. God gave us emotions. And that's because reality is bigger than the world that we can perceive with our five senses. Now, why did I feel fear at the prospect of death? Why do we all fear death? Why can't it just be a biological fact. I mean, it happens all the time, and it will happen to every one of us. Well, the reason we fear death is because there's more at stake when we die than just a heartbeat ending. Now, we can't see this fact. We can't hear this, taste it, smell it, or touch it. But it's our emotions, particularly the emotion of fear, that informs us of this truth, informs us that our life is much bigger than just biology, that something much larger and, and bigger and significant is going on when a human being dies than just cells ceasing to produce life. Now, fear, of course, is not the only emotion that I feel or that you feel. We feel things like love. We feel these very deeply, that this deep connection and attachment and sometimes desperation to be attached to, to others. We feel passion about the things that are important to us. We feel guilt whenever we do what is wrong. Now, none of these are physical realities that we're perceiving, but they are every bit as real as what we can perceive with our five senses. It is our emotions that sense these invisible realities. You know, we, we can't see love. We can see the people that we do love, but we can't see the, the object of love itself. But boy, we can sure feel when we are loved, and we can sure feel when we aren't. We can't weigh what's important on a scale, but we really can feel it when our life has no purpose to it. We can't smell sin when we do wrong, but we sure feel guilty when we do sin, and we sure feel angry when other people sin against us. So how do we lose all sensitivity, all emotional sensitivity? Do we just suddenly stop feeling emotions? Well, that can happen eventually. But it never starts there. The loss of sensitivity always begins at the same place. It begins when we became separated from the life of God. That's the beginning point of the loss of sensitivity. That's what proceeds in these, these verses, the having lost all sensitivity statement. We are separated from the life of God. Well, why is that? 
Why is there a connection between the two? What, what does God have to do with our emotions? Well, the reason that there is an unseen world in the first place is that there is an unseen God who created this unseen world. It was God who first said, this is right and this is wrong. Without that, there would be no guilt. You would feel no guilt. But common to the human experience is this feeling of guilt. Now, we may disagree on what is right and wrong, but everybody agrees that some things are right and some things are wrong, and everybody also agrees that we personally, they personally have violated whatever their standard is. They feel guilt at some level. Why? Where, where did that come from? Biology doesn't produce that. Cells can't generate that. Chemicals can't bring that about. That's something invisible. But boy, it's, it's real. We feel it over and over and over again. It's because God is the one who said this is right and this is wrong. Even if we disagree with him on what is right and wrong, we still agree some things are right, some things are wrong. It was God who said this is important and this is not important. If it wasn't for that, it wouldn't matter to us what we did with our lives. We could care less whether our lives had any meaning or purpose or sense that we were doing something important. But because God said certain things are important and other things are unimportant, we just really are driven to live lives that are important. It was God who loved and told us this is love and this is not love. If he hadn't said that, we could care less whether we were loved or hated but boy, we sure care now. You see, every emotion is rooted in reality by God. Otherwise, where, where do these emotions come from? Why, why do we feel these things? They don't come out of the material world. We are the ones that feel these things. It's because the emotions are rooted in reality by God. What that means is that a connection with God is required to keep our emotions properly calibrated. So when we separate ourselves from God, our emotions get kind of weird. They go squirrely on us. You see, just like our physical senses were designed for this world, this place, our emotional senses were designed to key off of God. They were designed for a relationship with God. And this is why our emotions are not trivial to us. What we feel is not just kind of the icing on the cake. What we feel dominates our lives and dominates our decisions. We are the only creatures on earth who are actually capable of killing ourselves when we feel like our life has no meaning or value. No other creature does this. We do this. We alone demand, not just prefer, but demand restitution for wrongs done. And we, well, we are obsessed with love. We can't seem to write a song or tell a story, or go to a movie that isn't about the pursuit of love or the loss of love. Why? Why all this guilt? Why all this passion? Why all this fixation on love? It's because we were created to have a relationship with God, and we have the emotions to prove it. So what happened? Well, we've all decided to live like the Gentiles do what it says in this passage. What does that mean? It made perfect sense to those who first heard this statement 2,000 years ago. We know what the word means generally, but what it means practically is the Gentiles live in such a way where God is really not a factor. We live now, naturally, 
where God is not at the center of our daily life. He's, he's not a part of our decision-making process. He's not someone we calibrate our emotions to. He's, well, he's on the outs. Why? Well, we have all decided to trust our own thinking. That's where the separation occurred. You know, with Adam and Eve, the first ones to do this, it was the forbidden fruit decision. God said, no. And they thought and thought and thought, and they got to the point where they decided, "Mm, we know better, yes, we'll do this. Now, I've done the exact same thing. I mean, not with forbidden fruit, but the same process. And you have also. We've all done this. We've all come to many decisions where we thought, you know, I think I'm just going to go with my gut on this one. I'm just going to trust what I think on this and what other people think on this, not what God says. And whenever we decide that we know better than God, when we, we cut ourselves off from what he has said on these matters, our thinking becomes futile. This is what it says. We, we, we become futile thinkers. Now, the English word futile comes from the Latin word that means to pour out easily. And the idea of being a futile thinker is you leak all kinds of thoughts. You, you, don't, you have all kinds of ideas. But, but they're, they're, you're not able to build anything that really lasts. You're not able to look over the edge of the bucket and see a life that, well, it's not leaking. It, it really stands for something. We just kind of start thinking in circles, chasing our feelings. What happens then is it, when we separate ourselves from God in these areas, we're on our own. Now it's up to you to decide what you think love is. And it's up to me to do the same and everybody else. It's up to you to decide what you think is right and what is wrong. And it's up to me to do the same along with everybody else. It's our job now to figure out what's important and to try to create a sense of meaning out of what we think is important. But when we do this, when we go independent and futile in our thinking, our understanding becomes darkened. What that means is we are able to perceive less and less of reality. You know, if, I, if we turn the lights off here and you tried to navigate out of this room in the dark, you, you, you know, you'd bump into stuff and into each other. Because you, now you, you can see a, a, you know, the whole room, but at that point, I mean, you can only see this far. And this is what's happened to us on the inside is we've lost the ability to see at any distance. And so we just keep bumping into stuff and bumping into each other because things get darker and darker. Our ability to perceive the invisible reality, like what love is and what's really important and what's right and what's wrong, well, that just gets harder and harder because the light of God's truth gets dimmer and dimmer. And as God's light grows dimmer, we get dumber. That's just the way it goes. Now, not about science and technology. Not about the stuff that our five senses can perceive. Oh, we're, we're getting smarter and smarter, amazingly smarter in that area. So we don't get dumber about science and technology. We get dumber and dumber about, well, what is right and what is wrong and what is important and what isn't important and how do you build relationships? You see, without any external reference point, we are in our own emotional worlds now. Now, people come and go. But nothing is stable now. There's no solid ground now. That's because we keep feeling differently about these things, and so does everybody else. 
And just one example of this, you know, we marry somebody who's on the same page emotionally with us, and then we change, and we begin to feel differently, and they change, and they begin to feel differently, and because there's no solid ground that the marriage is anchored on other than how we feel about them and they feel about us, well, then when our feelings drift, the marriage dissolves. There's, there's nothing solid to, to build anything that really lasts on. Everything now is kind of in midair because we're all floating about in our own worlds. I mean, just imagine living in a physical world where reality kept changing. You know, one day the law of gravity was true. The next day stuff was floating and all over the place. I mean, you couldn't function in a world like that. What would you do if the laws of nature kept changing and shifting? Well, eventually, you'd stop trying. You'd sit down, you'd just give up and say, I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm not going to do anything because I don't know what's happening here. And this is, this is what happens to us emotionally. This is actually the next step in this, this progression. We harden our hearts. We, we just kind of sit down on the inside and we just give up because who knows how in the world to build a marriage and who knows how in the world to deal with guilt, and who, who has the first idea about what really is right and what is wrong? So we just kind of, emotionally, we, we just kind of go numb on the inside. And it has a tremendous effect on the way we relate to others, because when we stop caring about what God thinks, we will eventually stop being able to care about others. There's always a link between these two. Whether you believe in God or not, there's a link between your relationship with Him and how you relate to other people. We then become, at this point, like I was on my run that day. Head down, ears plugged, lost in our own worlds. I mean, there was a much bigger world all around me, but I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. Now, when I did finally hear it, when I did finally see it, I got it all wrong. I mean, I thought a car was about to run me over when, in fact, it was my wife about to smile and wave at me. I mean, how, how could I get it that wrong? Well, I had lost all sensitivity. That's how I got it wrong. I was lost in my own world and unable to accurately perceive the world that really was there, the world that was beyond my own head. You know, hours later, as I was getting ready to go to bed that night, my hands were still shaking just from the surge of adrenaline that, of fear that pumped into my body when, when my senses told me I was about to die. Now, that lie, my lie, lasted, you know, just a few seconds. But what about the even bigger lies that last for years or for decades? I mean, many people in this community, the vast majority, have spent years trying to find love based on a lie of what love is. Most will spend their entire life trying to figure out what is it that's really going to make me happy without ever knowing what God says, this is what's important. This is what will bring joy. And as the years go by and the failures mount, their hearts just grow harder and harder, and they go number and number on the inside. So what happens? Well, the heart must feel. God gave us this internal core of who we are called the heart, where our emotions reside. And even if we lose all sensitivity, even if we disconnect with God and, and we get kind of on our own and we're not able to perceive what really will bring us joy, 
That doesn't mean our hearts can just suddenly stop feeling and check out. No, the heart is created to feel. Happiness is not just a hobby for us. It's not just a nice add-on feature to life. It's, we're driven to it. And so what happens? Well, as sensitivity goes down, then sensuality goes up. And that's the second statement. Having lost all sensitivity, we then give ourselves over to sensuality. The senses turn inward. You see, without God, what is real in the invisible realm now has no external reference point. There's no way to check. Now, is this really right or wrong? Is this really what love is about or not? Is this really important or not? There's no no check with the external reference point. The only reality now is how you feel and how I feel. Everyone now is literally in their own little world. Emotions become primary, not secondary. This, This is the difference between sensitivity and sensuality. Put both words on the screen. Again, the root of both is the same, sense. But with sensitivity... The senses are secondary. They are caused by what is real. That's the way our emotions were designed to operate. Reality is primary. You feel guilt because something really is wrong. There there really has been some standard that you violated. Reality caused you to feel that. Reality is primary. Senses are secondary. The senses are pointed outward, trying to perceive what is really going on out there. But with sensuality, it reverses, it flips. The senses now become reality or primary, and reality becomes secondary. What I feel becomes primary. What is really there, that's secondary. You see, the senses are now pointed inward, not outward, because what I feel now is primary. And here's here's the key thing that happens when that occurs. Now, reality must conform to whatever I feel. If senses are primary, then that drives reality. This is where our culture is right now. How someone feels is the single most important thing about them. Not who they are or how they feel about who they are or what they've done, but but how they feel. Once how I feel is in the driver's seat, once it doesn't matter who I am but how I feel about who I am, once it doesn't matter what I do, but how I feel about what I do, well, then things, things can get off track pretty quickly. The thinking becomes, well, futile and dark. I want to show you just a three-minute video clip of a, of a guy who went on the campus of the University of Washington last year and interviewed students on that campus. And as he asks them these questions, I want you to notice two phrases that you will hear these students say over and over and over again. The phrases are, I feel like, they say that before they answer, or if you feel like, they say these two phrases over and over again. And it describes this is how we think now. Doesn't matter what's there, doesn't matter what's real, it matters most how you feel and how I feel. So let's take a look at this video and then we'll continue on. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, (laughs) 
Yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason you <laughs> need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? So why, why are these questions so hard to answer? I mean, you see them just, oh, I mean, it's because what they see with their eyes, a white guy who's not six foot five, is contradicting with what he says he feels like. And it takes a lot of education and a lot of TV watching and a lot of Facebook reading to get this goofy. But the mission has been accomplished. I mean, it, this is where our culture is. I mean, this is. And this should give you pause before you spend 50 grand a year to send your kids to a place that... I mean, this isn't just the University of Washington. This is, this is everywhere. Now, we watch this, and it's, it's funny, but it is sad. It really is, is sad. Because when our emotions become primary, 
we get lost. And the fact is, we're still in a real world with real people. And it causes all kinds of problems. This is what's true of our culture. We're lost in our emotions, trying, trying and failing to build marriages that last and lives that matter based on whatever we feel. I mean, you, you could never do this with physical reality. I mean, just try finding a job that conforms to whatever you feel like doing. That job does not exist. That's one of the problems employers are having right now is because a whole lot of people coming into the job market right now think that that's the way jobs should be. It's just not reality. You can't make money by gathering people together and say, hey, everyone do what you want to do. You can't get a paycheck doing that for very long. It doesn't conform to reality. Or just try driving on the side of the road this afternoon that you feel like driving on. Physical reality won't bend. You see, reality always wins because reality is in fact primary and how I perceive it is in fact secondary. That's just the nature of what is. And so what that means is if I misperceive reality, then I lose. Reality always wins. Now the difference between physical reality and invisible reality is how long it takes for the pain to show up when I get it wrong. You know, with invisible reality, the effects of getting it wrong are not immediately devastating. I mean, if you decide to drive home this afternoon on whatever side of the road you feel like driving home, you're not making it home. You'll get an accident. You might die. You'll be probably definitely injured. You will feel immediate pain. But if you decide to do whatever you think is right, not what God says is right, if you decide to build relationships on whatever you think they should be, what love is, then not what God says, you won't feel any pain this afternoon or this week or this month or probably even this year. But over time, as the years go by and the decades mount, the pain will increase. And you're going to wonder, where is all this pain coming from? Well, it's as Scripture says, you are now reaping what you have sowed. So without God as the external reference point to guide our emotions, we opt for sensuality. And we let our emotions just lead the way. So what happens next? Well, we indulge in sensuality. We don't just dabble in sensuality. It takes over. You see, sensuality is never just a hobby that takes up some of our time and some of our money and a few of our thoughts. It becomes our obsession. Why? Well, it's because sensuality is the attempt to create reality. And that requires a lot of effort. My favorite part of the Disney parks right now here in Southern California is Cars Land in California Adventure. I don't know how many of you have been there. I think it's my, you know, the best part of what they're doing right now. And if you've been there, you, you, or if, even if you've heard about it, you probably know that it, Cars Land is um, a replica or a, um, an attempt to create a scene from Route 66 in Arizona. Now, it's not the real thing. It's the fantasy version of the real thing. And Disney spent $1.1 billion just on the Cars ride. That's not the entire land. The land costs more than that. This is just the chance to go through those, you know, on those cars through Route 66 for two minutes. $1.1 billion. 
whenever you attempt to artificially create something, it gets expensive, whether it's physical or emotional reality. It's the same with our emotions. You see, we could build the kind of life that God says will bring us joy and peace, or we can try to come up with those emotions artificially. Honestly, both will cost you. There is a price to build a life that really does bring joy. But the artificial approach will cost you a whole lot more and give you a whole lot less in return. Artificial things always do. They never can compete with reality. And the thing you have to realize is if you decide to go for the fantasy route, the sensual route, it's never just a one-time fee. Or the price keeps coming and it keeps going up. That feeling that one artificial sensation gives, well, it, it wears off over time. What used to make you feel alive for a little while doesn't give you the same buzz for very long. So you have to go find another, as this verse says, kind of impurity. You got to find something a little stronger, something a little darker to generate the same artificial emotion that the previous kind of impurity generated and no longer does now. And you'll have to do this more than just once. In fact, you'll never stop doing this if you get on this route. There will be, as it says in this passage, a continual lust for more. It just goes on and on and on. Once the emotions become primary, they grab a hold of a life, and they spiral it down, and they demand more and more and more. How far, how far does it go? How deep is this pit? It's deep. Two weeks ago, I got a very chilling look at the bottom portion of this emotional pit. I got a look at this from the third row seat of a courtroom. Last November, my wife served on the jury of a federal trial. It was of a 66-year-old man, former teacher in the Santa Ana School District, who was convicted in this trial last November on all seven counts of sex with a minor and the production and distribution of child pornography. It was an awful case. Last week, about a week and a half ago, I went to court with my wife for the sentencing phase. Wasn't required for jury members to go, but she wanted closure on this. And I'm happy to say he got the maximum allowable by law. He got 190 years to be served consecutively. He'll, he'll, never, he'll never get out. Three victims testified at the sentencing phase about the devastation that this man brought to their lives. There were lots of tears cried in the courtroom that day. But you know, none of them came from the man who did this. I just, I kept staring at this man and he sat there like a stone. Felt nothing. How's that possible? Well, it's because what this verse says happened. A long time ago, he had lost all sensitivity. And now... He felt absolutely nothing outside of himself. No pain on the part of anyone else affected him anymore. 
He was lost in his own world. He was locked in his own world. Now, this wasn't his first conviction of a crime. Well, actually, this was his first conviction of a crime, which showed up in the sentencing phase because normally the sentencing considers the criminal record as a part to determine how severe the crime, the punishment should be. And so the judge asked, well, how, how does a man go his whole life like this and then do something like this? And the prosecution was quick with a response. Their response was, he doesn't go his whole life like a model citizen and then suddenly do this. And they went back to the history. The prosecution said that it all began from their understanding over 50 years ago when he got involved in pornography when he was a juvenile. And they marched the progression, really the, the descent into the pit. Now, I'm sure that when that young boy picked up his first pornographic magazine, he could not have even imagined abusing young girls. I'm sure that he'd not planned on spending his last few decades in a federal prison. What happened? Well, he did what most people do. They cut God out of their lives. And they begin to think their own way forward, and their thinking gets darker and darker, and their hearts become harder and harder. And then, having lost all sensitivity and still needing to feel alive on the inside, he gave himself over to sensuality. He stepped over the edge and into the pit, led and pulled down by his emotions. And he fell deeper and deeper into different kinds of impurity with a continual lust for more never getting enough until he ended up in that courtroom. And as I heard those women talk and watched them cry, I mean, the entire courtroom was tearing up. I realized when someone gets lost emotionally, it's usually other people who cry. They don't always cry so much because they're, they're in their own world. Now, I debate about whether to even tell you this horrible story. And the reason I debate is because I, I know what the thought is going to be. It's like, well, that's not me. And you're right. It's not you. It's not us. We don't do that. But I decided to tell the story because you need to know this. Once you step over the edge and give yourself over to sensuality, you lose control. You don't get to decide what level the elevator ends and you get off. You have just jumped into the pit. And there, honestly, there's no telling how far you'll go. Not many go this far, but there's no telling. And what's happened in our culture now is our culture has removed all of the fences that used to surround this pit. All of the sexual boundaries. I mean, cult, that's one of the roles culture has is to Set aside sexual taboos. Our culture now has said, what sexual taboos? That's an antiquated idea. They've torn down all the fences. Now, we still condemn child molesters. And I'm glad we do. But the upper parts of this pit, well, they're normal now. Well, actually, they're not just normal. They're celebrated. Everybody is told, jump in. The water's fine. And the numbers, 
on this pit, any side of the pit, any level of pit you want, it's, it's just staggering what's happening now. I mean, just take the numbers on pornography. It's absolutely stunning, the percentages of people for whom this is a daily part of their life. Now, not just for men like it used to always be. The, the largest growth segment for pornography right now is women. I mean, it's just, it's taken over. Now, if you add those numbers to the numbers of those who are trying to fill something in a bottle or a pill or a substance or in a bed, and you can see that the vast majority, majority of people in this community are in absolute free fall. The kids in high school right now are being torn up by this stuff. Why? Well, it's because my generation tore down the fences. And now the next generations are wandering and falling and jumping into the abyss, lost in the gravitational pull of some addiction. And the pain and the tears that are caused by this is absolutely staggering. Now, you don't see this because these tears are cried behind closed doors. They're, they're, they're cried in private. But they are vast. And only Jesus has the power to pull someone out of this pit. That's because only Jesus can restore our separation from God that causes the loss of sensitivity and the pull of sensuality. You have to understand this. You cannot climb out of this pit. You may think you can. You may think that you can grab a hard enough onto the edge of this slippery pit and pull yourself up. Yes, you can grab on. But you don't have the strength. You don't have the grip to hold where you are. On your own, you'll go deeper and deeper and deeper. You can't climb out of this pit. You must be saved. You must be pulled out of this pit. And that's the case with almost everybody that you see. Now, if you're in this pit, you're in the vast majority. And if you have yet to cry out and ask Jesus to save you, well, do it today. You don't have time to mess with the pit. And if you have given your life to Jesus... You need to understand, you've discovered the one thing that this community needs more than anything else. The only thing that can bring them joy and peace, the only thing that can rescue them from whatever form of the pit they're in, however, level, however deep the level is for them. And we need to realize we have what this community needs, so don't hide it. And certainly don't be embarrassed that we have the only answer to all the tears that this community sheds every night. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't hear the tears. We don't hear the cries of our community. Sometimes, maybe on summer nights with all the windows open, we can hear some things. But for the most part, by the time people exit their apartments, their garages, they're back to looking together. But in privacy... And in attempted secrecy, this community is in free fall. 
that's happening all around us. And Jesus, you're the only one with the strength and the power to pull people out of this. So I pray for those in this room right now that are in free fall, that have given themselves over to sensuality. God, I pray that they would cry out to you for help and they would begin to build the fences and the patterns to stay far away from the edges of this pit. And then for those, the vast majority of this community who, when they think of Jesus, their eyes roll and they feel much smarter and they don't have no idea that in the name of Jesus, their lives could be what they've always wanted them to be. Help us to love these people, to reach out to them, to speak up. We pray that you would save this place that we love. We ask this now in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.